Please take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we will be today. Uh, We are going through a series this fall on the Apostles' Creed called I Believe. And last week, if you were here, Gabriel did a great job of of talking about the death of Christ, that he was uh, crucified, uh, dead, and was buried. And we're going to be looking at two lines today. Uh, he descended into hell, and that on the third day he rose again. <clears throat> Tim Keller, uh, one of my favorite personal authors, is a pastor in New York City. He's pastored in New York City for a long time. And uh, frequently, he's had skeptics come up to him, come up to his church and being in New York City. And he says a lot of times they would, they would tell him something like this. They'd say, uh, Pastor Keller... I really struggle with, with this aspect of Christian teaching, whatever that may be. I like this part of the Christian faith, but I, I really don't like that part. And Tim Keller says he would frequently respond by saying something like this. Uh, I, have, I have it up here on the, on the screen. It says He would say, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all of what he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any? Of what he said. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Dr. Keller is right, and we're going to look a little bit at the resurrection today. Um, If I could summarize these two lines in the Apostles' Creed that we're going to be talking about, he descended into hell and on the third day was raised again, I would simply say this, Christ has died, Christ has risen. Christ has died, Christ has risen. And we're going to talk about the resurrection, uh, but I first want to spend just a few minutes talking about what is um, certainly one of, if not probably the most uh, confusing and controversial even, line in the Apostles' Creed. So if you've been kind of following this fall and wondering, oh, what are they going to say when they get to the line that Jesus descended into hell? Uh, today is the day. So uh, that. That fell on me, so hopefully I, I do it justice. I'm not going to spend a long time on it because I want to spend most of our time on, on the resurrection, but um, the Apostles' Creed, as, as you know, as Pastor Bart said, is from the first few centuries of the church. It's very early, and it developed over time, and uh, the phrase, actually, the phrase, he descended into hell, was not in the original versions of the creed. Um, there were slight variations in the creed. Not everybody said it the same way, which is actually still the case. If you go to some churches, they may say it a little bit differently with a word here or a phrase different there. Um, but the earliest usage of that phrase was in the, in the 300s, and it was just understood to mean that Christ was buried. Um, it was oftentimes said Christ descended into Hades or descended into Sheol, which those are both biblical words that just mean death. And so it it simply meant that Jesus died. That was the original meaning of the word. And it was only several hundred years later, in kind of the mid-600s, when the phrase started being introduced a little more widely into the creed. And, of course, the creed already said Christ was uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and descended into hell. Well, if that just meant he died, that sounds a little redundant, Right? And so people started looking for some other explanation that could be found for what that, that phrase might mean. And so it was from that that the, there came the term, the harrowing of hell. Has anybody ever heard that, that term? That's probably more of a Roman Catholic 
phrase, um, but the harrowing of hell, basically, it was thought to mean that, uh, that Jesus, after his death, he literally descended into the place of hell, and he released Old Testament saints from that, that place. And you can go Google um, harrowing of hell images, and I, I didn't put any on the slideshow, but um, during the medieval ages, the Middle Ages, there was a lot of artwork of this and kind of some gruesome stuff of Jesus going to the place of hell and bringing, bringing saints out of it. Um, but there, there's, I believe, at least, that there's biblical evidence against that, against that teaching. And I'll give you just a couple of verses. Um, one is, these are well-known verses, John 19.30, where Jesus on the cross, he, he says, it is finished. It is finished, meaning the work that I came to do to, to pay the price of sin, to cover sin, is completed. There is no more work left for me to do after the cross. And then also in Luke 23, 43, another uh, famous verse, he tells the, the, the thief on the cross next to him, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. In fact, scripture is really pretty silent on what exactly happened to Jesus between the Friday that he died on the cross and the Sunday that he rose again. It really doesn't go into detail about what exactly was happening then. And so it's actually, I think it's, it's a little dangerous to build a doctrine of certainty on something about which the scripture is not very certain. And so some have argued because of these arguments, what I, these verses that I just said to you and just the confusing nature of this phrase that well, we just shouldn't say it, we just should take it out of the creed. And so you can go to some churches and they just, they won't say it, they'll skip over that line. In, in the Apostles' Creed. But we're saying it here at fullness, and, and I think that there is still pastoral help that can come from this phrase when it's understood in its original meaning that Jesus really did die a physical death on the cross. That Jesus didn't swoon or faint on the cross. That Jesus wasn't replaced at the last second by someone who looked a lot like him and, and he didn't actually die. That's, by the way, that's actually what, what Muslims believe. That's what Islam teaches about the cross, that Jesus didn't actually die. He was replaced at the last minute. But scripture affirms that Jesus really did die on the cross. There's some in history, though, um, John Calvin being one of them, and you don't have to agree with everything John Calvin said. I, I don't, but um, I would agree with him on this at least, that uh, he said that Jesus experienced the descent into hell in a symbolic sense actually on the cross. It was on the cross that he descended into hell, that on the cross, Jesus was crushed under the full weight of the holy wrath, the righteous judgment of the Father against sin. And that it was on the cross that Jesus experienced for a period of time, abandonment from the Father when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that it was on the cross that Jesus tasted hell so that those who believe in him don't have to. That's the gospel, right? That is, that is good news. That is glorious. But for the disciples who were there at the time of the cross, there would have been nothing glorious, nothing Beautiful, nothing triumphant about the cross in their minds. 
For them, the road to death, the road to Sheol, would have only been one way. To them, the cross meant that Jesus was actually a failed Messiah. They would have thought something like this. Well, we just spent the last three years of our life backing the wrong guy. The guy that we thought was going to overthrow Rome was actually defeated by Rome up on a a public cross. Can you imagine the disillusionment that they would have felt? One scholar puts it like this. She says, if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, we would never have heard of him. I think she's actually right. Jesus would have just been another obscure name in history, another failed Jewish revolutionary. But it's into this context that the resurrection happens. Now, I've, I've been given the task of talking a little bit about the resurrection today, and, and I, I feel like I'm trying to describe the Grand Canyon to somebody who's never been there. I mean, words don't do it justice. Pictures don't do it justice. And so there's, I can't possibly say everything that the, there can be said about this. Um, I can't even say everything that 1 Corinthians 15 says about this. But I simply want to try to draw three points Three points on the cataclysmic significance of the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. And so briefly, the the situation here is that the the church in Corinth that the Apostle Paul is writing to in this letter, um, basically they're denying that there will be a future bodily resurrection. And multiple reasons for this have been given. Uh, The point is that they're saying there's not going to be a future resurrection. There's no bodily resurrection resurrection from the dead. And uh, probably the idea was something like, well, we've already been raised in a spiritual sense, so we don't need to be raised physically. But Paul's argument, one of his main arguments in this chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, is he's saying, when you deny that there's such a thing as the resurrection from the dead, you're saying that even Jesus himself hasn't been raised from the dead, which that means that you're actually denying one of the core elements of the gospel, and our entire faith is, is a sham. It's all worthless. You take away the, re- the resurrection, you take away everything. So here we go. We're going to look at three, three things about the resurrection here from 1 Corinthians 15. Number one is this, uh, the resurrection defined. Resurrection defined. We have to get our terms right first. And I'm going to start reading in verse 3. I'm going to read verses 3 through 7 here of, of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Much could be said about this little passage, but basically the point that Paul is making here is that the resurrection actually happened in history. That Jesus was seen in bodily form by many after his death, by the way, by those who had no expectation of seeing him alive again on this earth, which is part of the evidence for why it happened. So this means, if if you're taking notes, that the resurrection was historical and it was physical. It was historical and it was physical. 
We shouldn't miss the importance of this. Basically, what happens at death when somebody dies is that the body is separated from the spirit and the soul of a person, right? That's, that's what happens when, when somebody dies. Resurrection basically just means that the body is reunited with the spirit and the soul in a renewed sense. That's what we mean when we say resurrection. Resurrection means a body. So when you hear someone say something like this, and you'll, you probably will hear this in, in spring when Easter time comes around, somebody might say something like, well, Jesus was raised symbolically in the hearts of his, of his followers. That's what they meant when they said that he was raised. It was just symbolic in their hearts. Or his, his spirit went to heaven. When you hear somebody say that, you know that they don't mean what the early Christians would have meant when they said resurrection. They knew what they meant when they said that Jesus was raised from the dead. They meant that it was a body. N.T. Wright says this. He says, if Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world, news which warms our hearts, precisely because it isn't just about warming our hearts. He's saying this, he's saying the resurrection, if it's not historical and physical, then it basically just becomes a your truth, my truth kind of thing. You can accept it to be true in your heart, but that person doesn't have to accept it to be true. But if Jesus actually physically got out of the grave, if his body started breathing again, like we sang earlier in that, in that song, then no one can ignore Jesus forever, but they will all be forced to either bow to him as Lord or reject him, ultimately. There's no third option. The resurrection as historical and physical means that you can't sit on the fence with Jesus. So when we call people to come to Christ, we're not calling them to make Jesus my truth. We're calling them to come to grips with the reality that this Jesus is really alive, literally, not symbolically, literally. So meanings matter. But number two is this, the resurrection defeats death. The resurrection defeats death. I'm going to skip. I, I, I said I have to skip a lot from the chapter, so I'm going to skip to verse 20 um, and read for a few verses here. Verse 20 of still in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, after he's kind of responded to some objections that Jesus hasn't been raised, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each to his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Drop down really quick to verse 26. He says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Basically, the, the Christian understanding of resurrection is twofold. It's, it's kind of part one and part two. And it's, it's this, that the resurrection of Jesus has already happened in history about 2,000 years ago. But the resurrection of those who trust in Jesus, our physical bodily resurrection that we're going to look at later in the fall, has not yet happened. 
but they are very, very closely connected in Christian understanding. Paul is basically saying that even though our resurrection has not occurred yet, Jesus, his resurrection, is the catalyst for our resurrection. And he does this by using a word uh, that he uses twice here in this passage. It's the word first fruit. First fruit. Basically, that's, it's kind of a metaphor that Paul is using, and it's, a, it's an agricultural term. He's talking about a harvest. He's saying the first fruit of the harvest is like the very first produce that comes from that harvest, and it's the guarantee that the rest of the harvest is, is coming soon. So the first fruit is the guarantee of the coming full harvest. And he's saying that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit, the guarantee of our coming resurrection. He's saying that because of Jesus' resurrection, death will not ultimately defeat me because Jesus has defeated death in the resurrection. Now, so um, we're, we're walking around Birmingham this time of year or driving around Birmingham. Maybe if you drove up Columbiana this morning and you start to see things like pumpkins being sold the side of the road or in stores or you go around and you start seeing Halloween decorations in the stores or you look on TV and you see football games. Well, when we start seeing those signs, we know that what's, what's coming, what season are we entering into? We're entering into the season of fall. And we know that fall weather is coming. But of course, until very, very recently, it certainly has not felt like fall was coming, right? It's, it's nice out today. It's been nice the last few days, but it's been anything but cool fall weather. Uh, I think it was two weeks ago, the AC in uh, my car gave out. And it took me a few days before I was able to have time to get it into the shop to get it fixed. And so I can tell you, driving around in 95-plus degree weather in Birmingham, it certainly did not feel like fall was coming. But I saw the signs, and I knew that whether it felt like it or not, fall weather was on its way. That's the idea that Paul is getting at. Now, I, I, know, I know that at face value, this, for some, this statement that the resurrection defeats death is hard to, hard to believe. I mean, I know that when you look around our, our country, death seems like it's everywhere. It seems like it's every other week almost you hear about a new shooting that happens. And I, I know that there are people in this room that are in one sense or another staring death in the face, that it is a very real foe. And so to, to hear something said like, well, the resurrection defeats death, and like, I'm sorry, I, I just... I'm not with you on that. I mean, I, I guess I believe it in my head, but I'm having trouble understanding it. Um, remember, we, our family used to live in a house that was in a kind of a wooded area. I was in, I was in high school and, and college, and um, it was in a wooded area, and so we would occasionally get snakes, um, would just kind of be out. So we'd walk outside, and I, I usually would walk our dog in the evenings, and it wasn't that uncommon to walk outside and see a copperhead snake just lying there on the ground in, in our driveway or in the yard or on the street. And it happened more than once. And uh, I don't want to offend any snake lovers here, but um, you better believe that I showed the wrath of God to some of those snakes <laughs> by taking a shovel to the back of their head. Come on, come on. I'm just trying to be like Jesus, just crush the head of the snake. I'm, 
But if you've ever done that, if you've ever taken something to sever the, the head off of a snake, either partially or fully, what is that snake doing? That snake is still very much writhing all over the place, and you better believe I'm not about to put my finger anywhere near the mouth of that snake. Even though his head's been dealt a death blow, he still is very dangerous. He could still bite and inject poison. He still has a lot of bite. It, it takes a while for the death blow that has been dealt to him to fully be realized. That's the idea. On the cross and through the resurrection, in the gospel, Jesus has dealt the death blow to death. But death is like that snake that is still wreathing around and is still very much has a bite. And we still very much feel the bite when we look around. But there's coming a day when Christ returns and when the resurrection happens that that death, the death, the death of death will fully be realized and the snake will no longer bite. Amen? We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. Number three, the, the third point is this. The resurrection directs my present life. Resurrection is not just about future stuff. It's not just about past stuff. The resurrection directs my present life. I'm going I'm to read verse 17, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 30 through 34. You may think, well, you're kind of skipping around a lot, but hopefully we can see. I think there's a connection here that Paul makes. So, <clears throat> starting in verse 17, Paul says this. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And jump down to verse 30. Paul goes on. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised... Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul is basically arguing. One of the, the big things that he's arguing in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15, is he's kind of saying, okay, Christians in Corinth, let's say that you're right. Let's say that you're right, that there is no resurrection, that not our resurrection, not Jesus' resurrection. Well, here's what that means. Here's what that means for your present life. That means you have no freedom from sin. That means you have no reason to do anything except pursue your own comfort. Paul's point is that belief in Jesus' resurrection and thus our resurrection affects how we live now. That's what he's, that's what he's saying. He's saying we don't live lives of meaninglessness, just waiting around for death. But we live lives of holiness and we live lives of risk for the sake of the gospel. Because we know that this life is not the end, but the beginning of resurrection life. I'm going to break that down. First of all, the resurrection directs my present life to, to pursue holiness, to live a life of holiness. Now, in verse 34, Paul said, he said, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Now, that might seem kind of abrupt for Paul to say, well, stop sinning. Kind of like if you go to the doctor and you say, doc, it, it hurts when I, when I do this with my arm. And the doctor says, what? Don't do that. You're like, oh, thanks, doc. That's profound advice. 
And you, and you might think, well, that's kind of like, that's what Paul's doing. That's not very helpful to just say, tell someone stop sinning. But Paul is connecting. I believe that Paul is connecting what he said in verse 17 with what he's saying in verse 34. In verse 17, where he says, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. His point is, because Christ has been raised, you are not still in your sins. I'm going to back up to, I'm going to zoom out to uh, Genesis, like the big picture of Scripture. Look at Genesis for just a second. Remember, way back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis, the early chapters, how does death enter, enter the world? Death enters through Adam. It's actually what, what Paul himself says here in, uh, in verse 20, 21. Adam and Eve sin, they fall, and death comes into the world because death is the consequence of sin. Paul says death is the wages of sin. And so for generations after that, through the history of Israel, they offer sacrifices, right? They offer animals to pay the price, to pay atonement for their sin. Animals die to pay the price for sin. You guys still with me? This is just basic Old Testament history. But think about this. At the resurrection of Jesus... For the first and only time in history, God brings a sacrifice for sin back to life. So the resurrection is God's way of saying to Jesus, well done, my son. You have finally covered the price of sin. You have sufficiently covered sin. No more sacrifice is ever needed to pay the price of sin. Because Jesus has defeated sin on the cross, the resurrection is the public demonstration by God that sin's claim on us is over. The only way for those who trust in Christ to not be forgiven is for Jesus to not be raised, is what Paul is saying. But Paul says in Romans 6, 9, he says, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Because death no longer has dominion over Jesus, sin no longer has dominion over you if you trust Christ. Another way of saying this is that we're already resurrected spiritually, that we already have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And what this means is that you are free not to sin. You're not a slave to sin. Now, do we still sin? Of course. Do we still struggle with sin? Of course. But we don't have to sin. We're free not to. Have, have you ever had, and you don't have to answer this question out loud, please don't, don't raise your hand, but have you ever had kind of a, a defeatist attitude towards sin in your life? Maybe a, a struggle or a pattern, and you just kind of think, I know I'm going to do that again, because I've done it before so many times, and I know I'm going to do it again. I don't think it's, I'm ever, never going to get past it. Well, the resurrection says you don't have to act like a dead person because you're not one. You are alive in Christ, so act like it. You're alive, so act like it. When you, <clears throat> Pastor Bart has said multiple times in this series, and he said multiple times over the years, that what you really believe is demonstrated in how you act. You act upon what you really, truly believe to be true. Your, your actions demonstrate your beliefs. 
And so when you really believe that because of the resurrection that you are free not to sin, I mean, really believe it, you will actually begin to act differently. I, pr- I promise. I've, I've seen it happen. And by the way, this is not, please don't misunderstand, this is not power of positive thinking. Okay, I'm not talking about self-help. It's all just try real hard to, to believe. I'm talking about having your mind transformed so that you actually think in line with the gospel, and that you agree with what the Lord has said about you because of the resurrection. <clears throat> that you really believe because I'm alive in Christ, I don't have to react in anger to that person who annoys me. I don't have to give in to that temptation to lust after that image or that person. I don't have to walk around in bitterness against that person who did that thing to me. I could, but I don't have to. I'm free not to. Now, is it easy to think that way? I think we all know the answer to that question. Of course, it's not easy. It's almost always a process to get to the point where we're consistently thinking in line with the gospel, with the resurrection. But that's why we have to be in relationship with other believers, right? That's why we have to be in each other's lives so that they can battle for you in prayer, pray truth over you, and and remind you of the truth of who you are because of the resurrection, that you're not dead in sin anymore. You're alive in Christ. That's why we believe in small groups. That's why we, we, our hope is that every person who is a part of fullness is also a part of an E3 group, a small group. Because in isolation, it's easy to forget who you are. So the resurrection directs my present life to be a life of, of holiness. But also, the resurrection directs my present life to take, so I can take righteous risks for the sake of the gospel. This kind of ties back to point two, that the resurrection defeats death. In verse 30 and 32, I'm going to read again. Paul says, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I think I have it up here. um, What do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul is basically arguing that his way of following Christ his way of, of doing, of, of following Jesus, of being a Christian, would be the ultimately absurd life if Jesus was not resurrected from the dead. That's, that's what he means when he talks about facing beasts in Ephesus. I don't think he's talking about facing literal beasts. I think he's talking about people who opposed him and probably wanted to hurt him because of him taking a public stand for Jesus. And he's saying, basically, if there's no resurrection, I have no reason to take a public stand for Christ and to put myself at risk. I might as well live a risk-free, comfy life where I just am only concerned about my desires and my needs. Well, isn't that actually how most, most Christians in America kind of live? And I'm not pointing, I'm, I'm including myself in that, that's, that's kinda, that kind of describes how we do life as Christians here in America. What that tells me is that we don't have as strong of a theology of resurrection as what Paul did. And we, we've got to have a stronger one. Paul lived a life of hardship and risk for the sake of the gospel 
because he knew that nothing he faced here on earth had the final say, the final word on his life. Paul would say, a life of righteous risk for the sake of the gospel makes no sense apart from the resurrection. But if the resurrection of Jesus really happened, then no other kind of life makes sense. That's a mouthful. I'm going to say it again. Paul would say, a life of righteous risk for the sake of the gospel makes no sense apart from the resurrection. But if the resurrection of Jesus really happened, then no other kind of life makes sense. It was belief in the resurrection of Jesus that fueled the faith of the early martyrs. That's what gave them the ability to stand up to those who bullied them about their faith in Jesus. N.T. Wright again says this. He says, death is the last weapon of the tyrant. And the point of the resurrection is that death has been defeated Resurrection is not the redescription of death, it is its overthrow. And with that, the overthrow of those whose power depends on it. It was those who believed in the bodily resurrection who were burned at the stake and thrown to the lions. Right thinking about the resurrection will lead to righteous, righteous risk in our lives for the sake of the gospel. John Piper defines taking a risk this way. He says, risk is any action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. Any action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. How could you take a righteous risk for the gospel at your school, at your workplace, in your neighborhood? We probably won't face the same things that Paul faced But I will say this, I do think that in a society that's becoming increasingly secular and hostile to to the church, I think it's really important that we have a strong theology, a strong belief in resurrection to be able to take a stand for Jesus in in our day. The stronger your belief in resurrection, the more likely you are to do things that seem foolish in the eyes of a world that values comfort and personal gain. And please hear me, I'm not saying, I'm really not trying to guilt trip anyone. I'm preaching to myself as much as, as anyone. Um, but I do want us to be challenged to see how the resurrection practically affects how we live now. But the good news, the good news is this, that Paul says elsewhere, he says in Ephesians that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, talking about the Holy Spirit, actually lives inside you and me and empowers us to walk in holiness, empowers us to take righteous risks for Jesus. Amen? I would like to ask the, uh, the worship team uh, to come back up. And uh, I wanna, want us to close in, in this way. Um, we're going to sing the song again that they introduced to us earlier, Living Hope. Uh, that's That's one of my favorite songs right now. Um, And then afterwards, Pastor Bart is going to come up and and give our benediction, close us out. Um, But I want us to end this morning kind of on a a celebratory note, to, to celebrate the fact that Jesus has dealt the death blow to death through the gospel. How do I know? How do I know that I'm forgiven? 
and that I'm free from sin because Jesus is alive. How do I know that I can walk in holiness, that I can live a life of holiness because Jesus is alive? How can I live a life of intention and take righteous risk for the sake of the gospel? Because Jesus is alive. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Father, would you give us eyes to see this truth? Would you give us hearts to believe it? Would you give us hands and feet to act on it? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the risen Jesus.